Hola y bienvenidos to a new episode of the When in Spain podcast. A very warm welcome to you, wherever you're listening from around the world. Thank you so much for joining me. If you're new to this podcast and you're wondering what it's about, well, uh, I aim to bring a little slice of Spain, Spanish culture, insights, bit of armchair travel, I suppose, during these times when it's pretty difficult for us to uh, to travel, all about Spain. Uh, and this episode, of course, is absolutely no exception. Uh, coming up, I'm going to be talking to Alan Maguire. Alan is a British writer and podcaster. He's written for numerous publications, uh, The Local here in Spain, Huffington Post, Labourlist, uh, The International House Journal, Naked Madrid, and many more. He's also uh, worked on uh, a couple of books. He's currently working on a, a book about Spain and he's very interested in politics, philosophy and society and in fact he has his very own podcast which he started quite recently a few months ago called the Sobremesa podcast. Um, so go and check it out. Now Alan is, uh, Alan's focus is really more on politics and society uh, related to Spain whereas of course um, when in Spain as you guys know is more of a general look at Spain. Alan's joining me on this episode, and we're going to be talking about um, politics and economy pre-COVID in Spain, and we're going to be looking at politics and economy post-COVID, how we think potentially the economic and political situation in Spain could change uh, as we move through the COVID crisis, pandemic, but will this transform, change, uh, force Spain to have a long look at itself and look at ways um, which it can change for the better in the future. So that's what we're going to be talking about. It's quite a long episode, I guess because Sobremesa, Alan's podcast is called the Sobremesa podcast. Sobremesa, in case you're not sure, is the long kind of conversation or chat you have with family and friends after you've finished eating your meal. Normally on a Sunday afternoon, you'll have a long Sobremesa where you stay sitting at the table and discussing everything that's going on in the world. And so I guess this episode is a little bit like that, which makes sense, I suppose, given that uh, um, Alan's podcast is called the Sobremesa podcast. Now, I must say, when we decided to record the episode, uh, we decided to do a crossover. So in this episode, I'm interviewing Alan on the When in Spain podcast about uh, politics and economy. If you head over to his podcast, the Sobremesa podcast, a bit later this week, I think from Friday, he will be publishing an episode where he interviews me. And I'm going to be talking about on his podcast, um, the image of Spain, what the global image of Spain is, how it's perceived internationally, and whether COVID has affected the global image of Spain or not. So do go over, so do head over later this week to check out uh, Alan's Sobremesa podcast to hear me for once on the other side of the uh, microphone being interviewed by Alan. So just before we get into uh, this episode with Alan talking politics and economy and COVID, I'd just like to say, really, um, I had a, a number of messages from listeners saying, are you OK, Paul? You seem to have disappeared. What's going on? Is everything, are you well? Uh, <laughs> is everything OK in Madrid? Um, but thank you so much to, to, to those of you who did get in touch, because I do realise that it's been um, about a month since I published uh, an episode. Uh, the last episode I published was at the end of 
of October, I think, uh, talking about Ernest Hemingway. So I'm sorry for this long delay. Everything is fine here. Um, nothing major's happened. I've uh, just been really busy with work, uh, teaching. This time of year, we have a lot of exams. So I've been really bogged down administering exams and uh, marking and correcting dozens and dozens of exam papers, which is super time consuming. And so that's one reason. The other reason is Karina uh, was in the middle of a recruitment process for a new job. And I was kind of coaching her through that because it was uh, a lot of the interviews were in English. So I was helping her prepare for all of these different interviews. Um, I hasten to add that she was successful and she was offered the job. So that's great news. And she's super happy. So uh, that and what else happened? Um, I, I broke my mobile phone, which is like my main recording device. And uh, annoyingly, I had a couple of interviews on there, which I lost. Uh, that was annoying. That took me about two weeks to get a new phone, a new SIM card and sort all of that out. So um, I'm pretty trivial and mundane stuff, to be honest. But um, in case you're wondering, that's what's happened. I hadn't given up on the podcast. Uh, luckily, I hadn't been struck down with COVID or anything like that. So thanks for thanks for asking, guys. And uh, uh, all is well. And uh, well, here we are back with a new episode and I'm back into the saddle. I've already got uh, a couple of interviews lined up next week for new podcast episodes. So don't worry, there will be more frequent episodes coming your way, hopefully weekly again, uh, getting back into the saddle. I was looking back to last year. This always seems to happen about this time of year, actually, in the run up to Christmas. It's quite a busy time. So don't worry, the podcast is still here. It's still going. And uh, a big thank you to all of you for continuing to listen. And a big, big thank you to all patrons for continuing to support the podcast as well. And uh, just quickly on that note, I'd just like to give a special shout out to new When in Spain patrons who are supporting and sponsoring the show. So a big gracias to Marcus Jenkins, big thank you to Becky Mathewson, and a big, big thank you to Brianna Wallace, who actually was an existing patron, but who increased their monthly pledge. So big thank you to Marcus, Becky and Brianna. If anyone enjoys this show, you know what to do. Head across to patreon.com forward slash when in Spain, the crowdfunding website. You can sign up to support this show from as little as, I don't know, one dollar a month or one euro a month, whichever currency you select. I'd be hugely appreciative if you feel it's worth a couple of dollars of your money each month to keep the show going and growing. Okay, then. So let's get into the uh, episode because it's quite a long one. So you might want to break this down into two uh, separate sittings, if you like, of listening. Quite a lot to get through uh, with Alan. I guess it's quite a meaty subject. Some of the themes we touch on um, relate to a couple of previous episodes I recorded with the journalist and writer William Chislett uh, a couple of months months ago. So without further ado, here's Alan Maguire. Alan, a pleasure to have you joining me on the Wedding in Spain podcast. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me, Paul. So let's talk about the recent uh, budget. An unprecedented increase, no, the spending ceiling of over 50%. And I believe that was something in the region of 196 billion that was made available. This is going back to a couple of months ago, right? The total amount for Spain from the EU was 140 billion. I think it was around 70 billion in, in what they call grants, so they won't have to be paid back. And then another further 70 billion uh, available um, in the form of loans. Um, now, a lot of people have been like quite surprised by the EU's response to this um, crisis. Others, not so much. So I suppose 
I think it's a bit of a trauma for not just Spain, but a lot of countries that had austerity. Um, you know, there wasn't really an option not to have austerity imposed upon you um, during the, the aftermath of the financial crisis. So the famous example being Syriza in Greece, uh, you know, they elect, they had a referendum, they elected a really left-wing platform, an anti-austerity party, and then famously that anti-austerity party had to implement austerity um, against their wishes. Spain, on the other hand, the Pessoa were in power at the time, they started some austerity cuts. So, you know, for a sort of middle-of-the-road middle socialist party, that isn't a good thing, um, and it's something that they often don't talk about, obviously. Uh, but then, you know, Rajoy was elected, um, and he did the cuts much deeper, and he also threw in some reforms, which is what the EU wanted as well. Um, the most famous one being the, the working reform, the, the labour laws. Um, and, you know, there does need to be reforms in a lot of these countries that have old states, but then it's, you know, what form do the reforms take? You know, how are they reformed for the benefit of businesses or are they reformed for the benefit of workers or is it a bit of both and I think um, you know many people would agree that austerity was the wrong move because they didn't really implement austerity in America uh, Barack Obama didn't implement austerity and their economy did much better uh, than most of Europe's Europe's economy sort of stagnated there's been you know still low production it hasn't really changed by austerity it's actually probably made it worse um, and the, this, and I think like the, the the real signifier here was that the the difference between um, Europe and America is um, in the fifty years after the Second World War, um, even in Spain, which you know was under Franco's dictatorship, built this sort of security network of, and you know which is the National Health Service in the UK, but. Um, also the, the social security system here in Spain. Um, and, you know, in various countries, it's more, you know, in the, in the Nordic countries, you might say it's a lot more generous because people pay more taxes. Um, in Spain, they do very, their healthcare system does very well with little money, the little money that they do spend on it compared mm -hmm. to some of these other bigger countries. Uh, the Spanish healthcare system's very good. Now, um, Obviously, that's run by Comunidades and they allocate funds differently. And I've got a lot of bad things to say about the healthcare in Madrid. Uh, but, you know, you go to most cities in Spain and they have very modern, function, good function hospitals. I've heard many people, Brits or people who've come to live in Spain, have been very impressed by the Spanish uh, healthcare system. And in fact, actually, I've, I have a number of uh, Spanish friends who live back in the UK, in my hometown in Oxford, who work as uh, nurses in the British National Health Service. Um, actually, they say that they find that in many ways, uh, the Spanish healthcare system, um, they think, is, is better in terms of the uh, availability of treatments and equipment and how well managed and uh, equipped the hospitals are. I, I guess their complaint is that maybe in Spain, the problem is, is the instability of, of, of contracts for healthcare workers compared with the UK, which is why many of them have decided to go and work in the UK. But yeah, I think um, no one would disagree with the fact that uh, Spain has, a, 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 by European standards, a, a very good healthcare system, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I, mean, I suppose the, the one thing that uh, 
But th this was the thing that saved us during coronavirus was having this public health uh, infrastructure that, you know, we all had to stay indoors for several months so the hospitals didn't get overloaded because there was no vaccine to the virus then. But, um, you know, these are these were services that were already being run on a shoestring. A lot of people in the EU knew that um, this without the coronavirus, everything was, you know, being cut back. Services have been rolled back. Many people say the, the austerity imposed by the EU following the financial crash gave rise to the to the far right, which here in Spain is Vox. You know, this is happening all over Europe, Marie Le Pen in France, AFD mm -hmm. in Germany. And then you've got, uh, you know, you've got two authoritarian leaders in, in Hungary and um, Turkey and, and other places. And even in the Nordic countries like Sweden and, and the Netherlands and things, you know, there's a, a resurgence in the far right. And they are a threat to the European project, which is, you know, further integration into, you know, what some people cynically say is the United States of Europe. But, you know, when you have a shared currency, you need some sort of stability. So I think, you know, the European leaders come together. They had like a four-day conference over this, and it was the Mediterranean countries, and it was the the Mediterranean countries with a left-wing government in, in so Portugal, Italy, uh, who have like the five-star movement, which you know, isn't really that left-wing, uh, but and Spain, and these three countries, um, later supported by France and Germany, were pushing for this thing called krona bonds, which was like European bonds, so that all countries in in Europe would mutualize their debt. Um, now, countries in the north, often called the, like the fiscal four, so this was like Denmark, Sweden. Now, when I say fiscal four, you might think, oh, they're conservative countries. Actually, no, they're, they're socially democratic countries. They have good infrastructures. But they're sort of resistive to more European integration, which this would be one of the biggest steps for Europe to have this sort of all of the debt, countries' debt put into one like big krona bonds. So they came to a halfway thing, which was basically the debt from the coronavirus crisis will be mutualized, um, only part of it. Um, and they've sort of come up. This is why half of the money is in bond uh grants and the other half is in loans uh since then which this was back in like april i think or, or or june maybe since then both portugal and spain have said yeah yeah we'll take the grants um but we're not so sure about the rest of the money first um and and this is the, so i suppose for me this is the um, the crux of the matter like you can throw as much money as you want at a country but unless they make structural reforms it's not really going to do anything otherwise you you end up with um you know really like spain's last economic uh boom you ended up with all of these like in my hometown well not my hometown but my town where i live leganes the the, mm -hmm. the signifiers of the the last crisis are all these really stupid roundabout sculptures that were involved with corruption. <laughs> so the local mayor got his, I think it was his brother-in-law, paid him like a couple of hundred thousand pounds to build these stupid um, structures in the middle of um, roundabouts. And I mean, they are really grotesque. Um, and then he likes, they sort of split <laughs> the profit and it only cost him 10 grand to build. And, you know, yeah. that was happening all over Spain. There was airports. And I think that this point now will be a very important point for people's confidence in politicians, the state uh, and the EU, because 
the money being thrown at Spain, uh, the 140 uh, billion, uh, is more than they invested in Spain in the first 10 years of its um, when it joined the EU. So when it joined the EU, it was given yeah. money to build motorways and things. It was back in 1986 when it joined the EU. Yeah, right? and I mean, throughout the early 90s, it was given loads of money. I mean, you go drive around Spain now, there's some, I mean, they can't really call motorways beautiful, but there are some impressive motorways with big signs saying, this was built with EU funds. Yeah. Um, and anyone who's traveled from Madrid to Andalusia, um, my wife often tells me when she used to travel with her family in the, in when she was really young, um, so like in the late 80s, they used to tra- have to travel around all the mountain roads. Um, then they built <laughs> this great big uh, motorway and it just basically cuts through the mountains. Now, that's yeah. infrastructure that's really good and, and, you know, is brilliant for the economy and, and it really it's trying to bring all the countries of Europe up to the sort of same standard, which is, you know, a good thing about the European Union, in my opinion. But, uh, sorry, going back to the, I think Spain's ability to be able to spend this money will reflect a lot on the country. And it will also reflect maybe a turning point in the, in the, in the political caste because Podemos, the, the sort of first populist party to come out of the financial crisis on the left-wing side, often used to talk about, uh, the political class are terrible and they're the ones that mess us up. And, you know, that was including Angela Merkel and uh, these sorts of things. Now they're in government and they are sort of, they are sort of keeping the, the, what we call the Spanish Socialist Party, which are actually more of like a center left party. Uh, they're not very socialist at all, really, even though it says it in the name. Yeah. Um that they are sort of keeping the Socialist Party more on the left and in the, on the investment side. Um, but the one thing is their policies, which I think some of them look really great, like the the increases in public spending, the infrastructure, in, uh, investment in green technology, investment in digitalizing the state. So anyone that knows about applying for paperwork, especially immigrants in Spain, knows that the paperwork involved in applying for any sort of residency permit is just obscene. Um, and mo- migrants don't really come here with printers. So, um, you know, you go to these really bad. These really bad. Uh, yeah, I mean, who prints things off these yeah. days, yeah. really? Yeah, I agree uh, with that. Uh, Spanish, the famous Spanish bureaucracy. It's, it's, it's incredible, actually, the lack of digitalization compared with other countries. Just going back to austerity, what, in your opinion, have been the key consequences of that austerity? We talked about the health service um, being run on a shoestring. What other problems came out of the austerity measures in Spain? Um, I suppose, uh, for me, it would be the brain drain, really. Education in Spain, lots of people don't praise it. One thing I think is good about the education in Spain, I mean, it has one of the highest dropout rates for high school. So people not finish, people finishing at 16, I think, rather than 18. I think it's one of the highest in Europe. One of the but, highest, I think, if not, if not the highest. I, I think, think it might be, yeah. yeah. But for me, their, edu- their entrance to university is uh, quite good. You know, they do this sort of entrance exam. If you're a working class kid from Bayacas, but you're, you studied at school and you get a high enough mark on this university exam, you can study medicine. So uh, they rank the subjects. Uh, medicine is obviously one of the top ones. Um, but then they rank the subjects and the universities. And depending on your score, you can go to these things now. Uh, I'm a nurse and uh, from the UK and I came here to become an English teacher but I met lots of doctors in the UK 
through, through work. They were normally from posh, quite posh backgrounds. In the UK, to get into medicine, it's really difficult. You have to have a special second name and you have to get A stars and do voluntary work and all that sort of thing. In Spain, yeah. it's a lot easier to get into do medicine. Uh, and that just goes for other other disciplines as well. Like there's so many engineers in Spain, it's unbelievable. I'm not sure if it's just a Madrid thing, but... Um, it's so true. I've met so many engineers over the years of living yeah. here of various types, whether they're civil engineers yeah. or aeronautical engineers or chemical engineers or... But... <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's mad. And, but it's, and it's really cheap to go to university here as well compared to several other countries. I mean, you, it's a grand a year, basically, to go to a public university. Um, and whilst the education is, um, many might say, not as high or, or it's differently, I think it's just an old way of teaching. They do lots of exams. I've never known someone to study as much as a Spanish kid or a Spanish teenager. You know, exams every three or four weeks, I think. And they're extensive exams as well, things that they'll never use again and, and things like that. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. There, there is this kind of addiction to this kind of system of rote learning and maybe not so much critical thinking. I, I've yeah. had a kind of ability to be think creatively instead of just learning something, regurgitating it, forgetting it. And that sort of repeated and repeated. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, that's like, so coming back, like linking that back to austerity, it's like they, with the austerity, they basically just cut back what the state provides and there was no investment either. Um, so, you know, often the state invests in um, research, you know, the World Wide Web, GPS was all invented by the American State Department. It wasn't invented by Google or, or, or Amazon. Um, and, you know, private companies thrive off of uh, often public investment. And it, that's not to say it's a bad thing. The private sector also invests, but the private sector invests when the public sector invests. In. So this like lack of investment uh, has led to lack of opportunities, which has pushed a lot of um, Spanish graduates abroad, many to Germany, many to the UK. Um and they've sort of gone abroad, and I don't know if many have come back. And, and the ones that have come back have been a bit disillusioned. I know quite a few Spaniards that have moved back to Spain because they love, like like most people do, they love the lifestyle here. They love the fact that it's uh, relative. you can get have a relatively good life on sort of a minimal wage. But they don't like the contracts, and they don't like the, the poor management, and they don't like the poor organization, and the lack of investment from... Uh, you know, their lack of investment from, it's not just from the state, but from um, from companies as well. I mean, you know, the state, in my opinion, has an obligation to sort of create a a um, a, a culture of investment and, and entrepreneurialship. I mean, just becoming self-employed here is enough to put anyone off. Yes, being an, uh, an autonomo. There's very little incentive to, to become an autonomo, really, and work freelance or set up your own business because the way the system's designed is you have to pay quite heavy taxes up, yeah. up front to get going. And so most people are put off doing it, which for me is crazy. I mean, especially in, you know, now in the 21st century, digital economies, you're seeing around the world this growing startup culture. I mean, and Spain, yeah. and Spain does have a startup culture, but maybe that would flourish if they changed the way uh, the system in terms of allowing people to set, um, to set up their own business uh, without yeah, having yeah. any so I much financial burden. Yeah, with austerity, though, that was like one of the things that was like, we're cutting back, we've spent too much money, we've been a, we've been bad, you know, we had our fun, and then it, then the economy crashed. 
and now we've got to tighten our belts. And, you know, they often, uh, many politicians were guilty of comparing it to a household, but, you know, you don't run a country like a household. You know, I think this sort of brain drain and, and it's not an obvious symptom of austerity and there's it's probably difficult to prove uh, empirically that you know austerity causes but I think it's this sort of mindset and you know I, I spent two years living in London with my wife who's Spanish before I moved to uh, Spain and I met a lot of these people they they made up you know, Spanish people are very gregarious. They meet up in groups. And this often happens when immigrants meet abroad, like, you know, being British and meeting other Brits in Madrid is the same. Um, and I met lots of Spanish people in the, London. And most of the things that they all said, and this was in during the 2015, 2016, you know, when the big crisis was sort of at its point hitting home, really. They were like, there's just no opportunity in Spain. You know, if you've yeah. got, if you become a funcionario, that's like the best. But uh, if you want to, you know, yeah. Yeah, if you want to make some money or you want to, um, you know, if you want to innovate or, or you want to, you know, there's, there's, there's not many opportunities. And I think mm -hmm. that that whole mentality needs to completely change, um, yeah. not just for the sake of the economy. I think for if, if we don't want to see a Vox supporting government uh which i certainly don't because um i believe that they will eradicate the state further and um you know they're very macho lots of nationalism but not the sort of positive nationalism not progressive nationalism that's i think spain has quite a good level of you know i think these things all need to change if they want to sort of improve the economy but also you know give people a reason to vote for these old sort of parties that people feel failed, that people felt failed by back in 2008 and probably still feel failed by sort of now. I, I mean, the polls are a bit different, but the two-party system has been smashed in Spain. And um, Yeah. And I mean, I mean, and talking about jobs and younger people, you know, anyone under the age of, I suppose, 30, um, unemployment, um, it's, it's still a huge problem in Spain, actually. You know, if we look in the US or even the UK, it's around 4 5% um, compared with Spain, which is, well, I mean, right, way back uh, after the crisis, after the financial crisis, it was running at something like 27 28% for, for young yeah, people. Like 50%, 50%, wasn't it? At one point, at one point it was, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then they've managed to get that down, I think, uh, to about 15% now. And that's kind of been hailed as some kind of fantastic success story. We've got unemployment down to 15%, but it's still, that's astronomical compared to many other Western uh, democracies, you know. It's, it's kind of crazy. And I, I totally agree with what you're saying about... Um, opportunities for young people um i think uh you know i think spain has uh, in europe the highest the, the most overqualified population of any european country and uh the opportunities aren't there for them and the other interesting stat i suppose you could throw in which i found out recently which i found quite interesting is that i think something like eight out of ten businesses in spain employ fewer than 10 people so basically the majority of yeah. um spanish businesses are small businesses 
which then kind of opens the door to uh, abusive working conditions rather than, you know, have it working for a big national or multinational company which has very kind of strict policies and human resources uh, department and things in place to protect its employees. And I've certainly heard lots of this kind of thing from my Spanish friends who've worked for small companies um, who are given temporary contracts, uh, six-month contracts, and they get renewed every six months. Then takes them years to get a permanent contract. Um, there's this kind of mentality I've seen that uh, um, the employers, uh, you know, treat their workers a bit like well if you don't want to do this job there will be you know a hundred other people queuing up to do it so if you're not happy if you're not happy with if you're not happy with earning a thousand euros a month and you're not happy with a temporary contract then okay go and there'll be another person knocking on the door to to fill your shoes so this kind of uh, you know, um, revolving door syndrome. I think in Spain, I've I've noticed with with Karina, my my girlfriend, and places she's worked, and other Spanish friends, that there seems to be this lack of investment in people for the longer term. It just seems to be well, we just get uh, bums on seats, and you just have to put up with it if you don't like it, and 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 that's it yeah. really, which um, creates a huge amount of instability for young people, for those people under thirty. I'm not saying that's true in every case. I know people who work for big companies and have secure jobs and permanent mm. contracts. But in my experience, for the most part, most Spanish uh, people I know have quite um, precarious working situations, to be honest, which then has like knock-on effects because then it's like, well, how do you get on a property ladder? How do you buy a property? And in, in many cases, even it's difficult to rent uh, a place and move out of your parents home because if you've got a six-month contract most landlords or letting rental agencies say well no we need a permanent contract so it's just kind of if that that yeah. kind of uh, culture feeds into so many other parts of your you know uh, daily yeah. life i mean one thing that i do and i love about spain is the small businesses um in leganes where i live on the high street there are only two chain stores um the rest are small bars, locally owned businesses, family owned businesses, immigrant owned businesses. And, you know, these, they, a lot of these thrived because I think it, I'm not sure which government it was. I'm pretty sure it, there was a maybe it's Zapatero or, or Rajoy, but they put a, a freeze on, um, on rents for smaller businesses and bars and things, which is why. Uh, and that ended, right, yeah. they ended a couple of years ago, but I think it was for like 25 years, wasn't it? There was um, a rent freeze on small businesses, yeah, for a long time, for about mm. 20, 25 years. I, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure which government it was under. I think it might have even been before Rajoy. I mean, this might have been going back to, I don't know, the uh, early 90s or late right, 80s. Yeah, even. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. Uh, I totally agree with you. That's one fantastic thing. And I've, mm. I've talked about this a lot in the past. You know, the diversity of businesses, these small businesses that, um, in, for example, where we're from in the UK, have just, just vanished yeah, you know, 20 yeah. years ago. You're, the, the little local grocery stores, the independent yeah. shops, um, you know, swallowed up by big chains, um, mm. which you have in Spain, but to a far lesser extent, I think, than other yeah. uh, European countries. Yeah, yeah. But as well, like, um, so I think, you know, these small businesses need to thrive and, and so do new smaller businesses coming through. But uh, a lot of these small businesses and some of them are quite like 
in a cynical way, quite in a funny, you know, they have big white knickers stuck to the <laughs> stuck to the window, <laughs> like come and buy your, you know, your your big white garments here. Um, but you know, the people yeah. that own these businesses are dying off, uh, all retiring. And I think we're gonna see after the coronavirus a lot of these have gone. Um, especially with the bars as well, you know, a lot of people don't want to invest these sort of what's become popularly known in Madrid as no frills bars but people don't want to open you know families don't want to inherit these or things like this um yeah so that's yeah. something i think will change from coronavirus is a lot of bars and shops and uh things and what's going to replace them if, if it's not um if it's not young spanish people which you know we want it to be young spanish people that entrepreneurs and people that want to own businesses that are going to treat the staff right or is it going to be these, you know, giant, um, you know, sort of chain stores? And I know you said sort of big companies have good, um, you know, like ethical and HR and things like that. And I think that's true in like the office world, like services, financial services, like BBVA yeah. and you know Santander and all these sort of big multinationals that employ a lot of people and that they are very important. Um, but then you get like. Uh, employers like Deliveroo and um, Globo, and they are very precarious large employers. And um, I think one good thing the Spanish state is doing now, and I think she's one of the politicians to work out, look out for, is the Minister of Labour, Yolanda Diaz. She's from um, she's from Podemos. Uh, well, she's a member of Esquerra Unida, which, was, um, which is part of Podemos, and she's from Galicia. And she has been one of the major forces in, I think she's one of the brightest politicians in Spain. Um, mm -hmm. And she's a labor lawyer. Um, and she has taken a lot of these companies to court. To, and it's not like to, it's to literally just give these, like the riders, the delivery riders, or um, give them contracts and make the companies pay social security which they weren't doing before because, you know, and this is happening all over the world. And Spain is actually taking a, taking a, um, taking a lead on this in Europe, I think, by prosecuting these companies and going forward. And I think, you know, that needs to happen as well. I mean, you, we can talk about entrepreneurship and, and let it, cutting the taxes down for autonomous, which I, I think needs to be done and the contributions that they make and what their, mm -hmm. the, their availability to certain things. And also how much it costs small companies to employ somebody. It's often why there's like a big, um, you know, uh, tax-free economy in Spain uh, because it's so it, it is quite expensive to employ someone. I I understand. I've spoken to a lot of English school teachers yes. who own academies, and they like it's so expensive for me to employ a member of staff. You cannot believe um, that's why the wages can't go up. So, you know, all these, but these things have to be balanced. I mean, you can't cut all the taxes for people at the bottom and not increase them for the people at the top. And I think that was something you wanted to talk about, wasn't it? Like the taxes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, because um, I think from the recent budget, this was uh, something that was set out, um, a ta tax hikes for high, high income individuals and corporations. Mm. That it will, you know, in effect, only affect a small percentage of taxpayers. But is, do you think that's the way forward? Do you think this is just a symbolic gesture? Do you think this is something that will actually have some tangible effects for those at the lower end of the uh, earning scale? I think the this come this makes the uh, 
the politics within the coalition government very interesting so you know the coalition government that we have between the PSOE, which is sort of center left so they're like pro-european union they pretty much do whatever the european union wants but they're also very you know pro-business um they are pro-monarchy this is a party that has politics within it itself like they pedro sanchez who's now our prime minister was actually the leader of the PSOE for a while uh and then he got kicked out by the the managers of the the machine of the PSOE, which is huge it's it's one of the biggest and one of the oldest um parties in uh, it's the oldest party in spain next to one of the pnv in, in the basque country um and you know there's internal dynamics going on in the PSOE, and there's internal dynamics going on in podemos podemos um were like trying to overtake the PSOE when they started um, as to become like the left-wing vote in Spain. They never achieved that goal, and, and they are what many people would call um, populists. And um, if you read the news, I mean, it depends on where you read the news, um, Podemos are often like shown as like this horrible communists. Um, Pablo Iglesias gets a lot of hate via the media. But I think Podemos are making... Um, and I think the EU are giving the PSOE room um, to invest more in the country and um, to do things that are good for people. Now, if they can get away with cutting taxes, um, sorry, if they can get away with not filling taxes too much, I think they will. And one of Podemos's, like, uh, part of their agreement as part of the coalition was they wanted a wealth tax and they also wanted a, a tech tax like on Google and things. Well, the Google one was shelved or the, the tech tax was shelved um, within months of the, the government coming to power. And the wealth tax has sort of been passed in some form. Uh, will that go ahead? I don't know. I mean, in days of, um, you know, um, offshore accounts and and you know the king was involved or the the ex-king was is alleged to have been involved with all of this uh you know these yeah. are things that um that even though they might put the taxes on these big companies and these high earners who's to say that um they're not just going to move their money around because a lot of it as well depends on the rules in europe i mean europe are passing bills uh, and laws to try and address these tax havens and I think this is where the European Union is so involved in the fiscal policy of Spain, not to a degree of you need to spend your money on this, but because sometimes it is, but or you can't spend your money on this, but also the wider sort of globalist um, system. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of difficult to say whether these tax rises will benefit because to be i'll be cynical with you and say i don't think that they will probably go through um they might generate some income but i think more of it's going to come from uh investment um mm -hmm. if, if that change if changes anything for work in spanish people it's going to be investment um if they suck that investment back out through taxes on the lowest earners in society then that's obviously a very stupid thing to do um mm -hmm. or if they suck it out of people that are trying to you know set their own business and um, you know, make them pay high taxes, then that's just the wrong way. And I mean, that's just continuing to do what they've done. I mean, Spain has very low taxes for corporations and 
high earners. I mean, they're not they're not the highest in Europe. They're not as mm-hmm. low as Ireland, but Ireland's a bit of a tax haven in the EU anyway. But you know, they're not as high as the taxing system. I don't think is as high as Germany. And I mean, look, Germany is one of the richest countries in Europe. Talking about that blueprint for the hike in tax rates, I know I noticed that the, the part of that deal sets a minimum tax rate of 15% for real estate investment trusts, which is quite interesting because the real invest yeah. the real estate investment trust is the type of vehicle company which is actually used by wealthy individuals to save taxes. A couple of weeks ago, there was a very it was a bit of a little scandal. I mean, I think the government and because it involves so many of the politicians that managed to brush it off. There's a right-wing publication uh, in Spain called El Español, and they had like a birthday party. This was just days after the Spanish government have said, all right, no more than six people are allowed to get together. They had this birthday party where they invited people from all across the political spectrum, and certainly people from across the political spectrum went. The health minister went. Uh, he had to later apologize for that and made it clear that he didn't stay for dinner. But you also had Inez Arramadas, the leader, the, the leader of uh, Ciudadanos, which is sort of the, like the, the centrist answer to Podemos. Then you had members of the PSOE there, but you also had members of the PP there. Famously, you never had members of Vox there or members of um, Podemos there. So like this sort of the two populists on each end weren't there. But you also had business leaders there, um, ministers from different governmental departments. And, you know, they were all like sort of dining together, really. I think, and and this is probably being a bit cynical, but as much as a lot of these politicians might talk about tax hikes for the rich and things, I think, you know, at the end of the day, PSOE have a large majority in the government. I think that this is going to be interesting for the stability of the country, but also the politics within the coalition, because, um, you know, Podemos want taxes on the rich and the PSOE probably don't. And they're probably going to be pressuring the PSOE and from Europe not to put too higher taxes um on mm-hmm. companies and things and you know can you tax your way out of a crisis uh i'm not sure can you invest your way out of a crisis yes um that's mm-hmm. what happened after the second world war be interesting to see what happens with that really i'm, I'm interested to, particularly to see what will happen with the uh pandemic recovery fund money which obviously is a vast amount of money for spain because that comes with caveats attached to it when that money is released spanish governments can't just spend it willy-nilly on whatever they feel like they want to everything that they have to present a case for spending to brussels and uh and that has to be approved yes or no so i mean that's gonna be interesting and i want i wonder is this windfall of money a turning point for spain in terms of as you were saying investment kind of forcing their hand in a way as making them invest in people rather than as we've seen as you mentioned before infrastructure whether now this will actually have some meaningful long-term effect on reshaping the economy for for workers so i've got on and this is a unbashful plug here but i've got an, uh, an interview on my podcast with a woman called uh, professor sophie gonick and she talks about the housing crisis and you know the resistance to this she was here studying um at the time and the one interesting story that comes out of that interview that reminds me is spain doesn't really have a comprehensive state-run housing program so, what we might call social housing. Yeah, social housing, council houses. Is is all the money going to be spent on infrastructure? 
I mean, it, I don't think it matters as long as it's good infrastructure. If it's terrible roundabouts, like there is all over the south of Madrid <laughs> or or like airports that have never been used and are sold to Ryanair for a euro, I think, or, you know, yeah, these yeah. terrible things, then, you know, that's where I think that this could not, this will be a turning point, but badly for Spain, because if you're given this much money and the politicians basically mess up how they're going to spend it, then I think that's going to cause, uh, that's going to give a lot of cause for resentment um, towards the government, but, um, and, and, you know, other people as well. But if they spend it well and it improves the material lives of, of people that have been so disenfranchised that they've, you know, they've either voted for Vox or they've voted for, for Podemos. I mean, it's a bit like uh, the American elections, really. You know, Donald Trump, uh, as much as everyone might hate him, there's obviously something that people love about him. And he increased his vote this election. He got a bigger vote share. And there's all these people sort of stood around scratching their heads like, why are people voting for him? It's because the guy was offering change. Now, did he give that change in his four years as president? I don't think so. And would he give it the next four years? No. But Joe Biden was saying, you know, we'll go back to normal. I think we'll go back to normal. But then it's like, was normal so great? And I think that's a similar thing. I think the government now need to make sure they spend this money properly and invest it properly um, to make sure that, you know, we don't get people like Donald Trump run in Spain. Um, because if, if, <laughs> if the alternative... If, you know, there's not going to be any alternative now because, like, Podemos were this, like, left-wing populist, you know, we all, we all sort out the state and all this sort of thing. They, they're in power with the very people they were criticising. Uh, and now the sort of outside influence, the alternative for people to vote for is Vox. Um, and, you know, Vox was famously slapped down a couple of weeks ago by uh, the leader of the, the centre-right party. So, you know... Um, they were slapped down and during a no confidence, no motion of no they confidence. They tried to mount a vote of no confidence, didn't they? Yeah. yeah which fell completely flat, yeah. Yeah, and 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 famously, yeah, the Conservative, the equivalent of the Conservative Party in Spain, who, you know, are quite right-wing and economically liberal and, and all the rest of it, uh, basically sort of turned their back on them. Um, so I think if, if this government... Um, and, you know, the other centre parties as well, the PP and the Ciudadanos, if they want to uh, stop people like Vox getting into power, um, then I think they need to work together a bit more and, um, you know, invest in the country, spend the money well. Because the other thing is uh, that I think we haven't mentioned is how decentralised the money in Spain and, and responsibilities for central governments are. So, you know, Absolutely. you've got... That's an important point. I mean, like, yeah, it might be that uh, we get all this money from the EU and then, you know, Pessoe give so much money to um, Catalonia, so much money to Madrid, so much money to Andalusia. And if those areas, you know, mess it up, the spending up, who's it going to reflect badly on? Probably the central government, in my opinion. Absolutely. And that's an interesting point because you know, I think kind of historically, if you look at budgets and spending of the Spanish autonomous regions, and I mean, there are numerous cases of corruption, particularly in Andalusia and in Valencia. Um, it's interesting how those regional governments 
largely rely on just you know, money being handed out from central government. But they don't seem to have this mentality or ethos of thinking as a region and as a regional government how they can generate their own income. Another thing is, as well, is the, the style of governance when it comes to uh, regional governments. You know, them working with the central government, I think that's another thing that's really been shown up by the coronavirus is that there is no... There's sort of um, political parties. If you know, I think the the, the clear example um, would be uh, the PP in Madrid. So the PP, as I said earlier, is the sort of centre right. It's the main opposition um, opposite the PSOE. It was like the the version of the Republicans, more or less. Um, you know, it was the big big right wing party. And they are in charge of uh, Madrid, and and throughout this coronavirus, the 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 president of the Comunidad of Madrid, Isabel Ayuso, has constantly um, gone against basically everything the central government has said, and you know this is a time of crisis when you know hundreds of thousands of people are dying, um, and there doesn't seem to be they don't seem to be able to get along to govern really um mm-hmm. and i think mm-hmm. that's you know that's a big problem because um you know it doesn't do the citizens any favors really um no, absolutely not and a lot of been a lot's been made of this recently hasn't it yeah. politicizing the situation with covid and you know, people just getting sick of it and saying can we just deal with this huge problem that we have on our plate at the moment first mm. Um, but I don't know what your opinion is on Ayuso. I mean, for me, it just seems like it's just de- deliberate, petty political point scoring almost for yeah. for the sake of it. Yeah, I mean, I think she's being used uh, as well, or not, not being used, but I think part of, like, they are trying to make the central government look bad uh, because mm. at the end of the day, she's a member of the PP and, um, you know, that's one of their ways of trying to make um the government central government look bad um but it's you know it's it's sort of and it, i think it was working to a degree um but not so much and i think so uh, this is kind of an interesting point um you know pablo Iglesias, who's the, the leader of podemos um and a junior partner in the coalition he's often depicted as sort of this crazy um Venezuelan sympathizing communist um in the media <laughs> yeah. and and then often you know denounced because he bought a nice flat in um or a nice villa in the, the hills of Madrid with his with his uh wife who's the minister of equality uh Irene Montero and they they um they are sort of often targeted by the Spanish media uh, rather, rather than Pedro Sanchez, uh, who's who's sort of, I think, quite well respected by the Spanish media. Bear in mind, he's the prime minister during a yeah. global yeah. pandemic. Um, and for for what small amount of power they have, um, they are obviously inside the government. And Pe- uh, Pablo Iglesias said in recent weeks in an interview, you know, mm. the worst thing that could happen to the Spanish right wing was that there would be a left-wing coalition in power at the time when Europe says we're going to invest rather than 
uh, <laughs> austerity in place. Because if the European Union put austerity in place, then we would probably have elections tomorrow. Because I don't think Podemos would stay in government, um, not only because of uh, you know political positions, but just down due to ethics. I mean, the the party was born out of the anti-austerity movement, which was yeah. you know in Spain was huge. Fifteen M was a massive movement, uh, like the Spanish version of Occupy, but 10 times bigger. Um, and, you know, he said that this was sort of like their worst nightmare, which is why as well we've seen a lot of um, the politicization of, of the pandemic, because, um, you know, trying to destabilize and delegitimize the coalition government, that, you know, at the end of the day was democratically elected. Um and, you know, that's, that sort of behaviour is kind of similar to what we're seeing to Donald Trump not accepting the result of their democratic elections in America, but it's from the opposition side. And there's been numerous court cases um, and uh, refusals to do basic uh, democratic uh, things like the renewal of the head of the Spanish national TV service, the renewal of the court administration um they, these things all need two-thirds of congress to vote for them and the pp could vote with the PSOE um and um you know renew these institutions that have meant to be renewed many years ago um but you know they're not and they're saying oh the reason we're not doing it is because we don't um we don't recognize your government because podemos are inside of it now, whether whatever your opinion of Podemos might be, and and they've made a coalition with the biggest democratically elected party, and they have a majority in the Congress. I mean, that's democracy. Um, and the 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 moves of the right, uh, in my opinion, and a lot of it's through the courts. Um, and and this is something we see a lot in in South America as well. It's sort of been imported to to Europe. Um, is like trying to make your opposition look bad by making them go to court and things like this, um, and and it's not to say that the the the, the left wing are all innocent and perfect because they're not, um, and I'm sure there's probably things that should go to court that haven't that have happened with the Pesoe in, in in years, but you know Absolutely. there's lots. I mean the corruption in in Andalusia, uh, Pesoe were in power in Andalusia from from. The day Franco died, all the way up until when they lost Andalusia to Vox and the PP coalition, I think it was two years ago now. Yeah, and yeah. They, yeah, they deserve to lose that, in my opinion, because there was so much corruption in Andalusia um, that you know they took the vote for granted and they took the people for granted. And if you take people for granted, then do you deserve to be in power? I'm not saying that I like the right wing and Vox in power in Andalusia. You know, no, but you're, you're right. Yeah, you, you can't take your electorate for granted. No. And rest on your laurels. And I think they obviously became uh, thoroughly complacent, I suppose. Yeah. Going back uh, to this windfall of money uh, for the Pandemic Recovery Fund, is it fair to say that Spain needs to diversify its economy? Because uh, we know very well that obviously tourism is uh, something like 
I don't know, 16% of GDP, uh, which is a huge percentage. I think it's like the third biggest sector in, in the Spanish economy. And then also the construction industry, which for decades and decades and decades has uh, been an essential part of the Spanish economy. The construction industry, I think, as we've seen, is not really not sustainable. And the Spanish tourism industry at times like this, and I know this is an unprecedented situation with COVID-19, we've seen, you know, economies suffering massively because of that. But is, you know, is this a wake up call for Spain? Is this maybe a kind of unfortunate, but maybe lucky coincidence that this has happened because it might give Spain an opportunity to reassess itself and where it's going for the next, you know, 50 years in terms of its economy, weaning itself off the addiction to building and infrastructure and tourism and looking at uh, what else it can do and what other kinds of economic roles it can play in Europe and and the world. That's 16% of GDP, which is tourism. I think it's probably a lot larger when you think of like the knock-on scale and, um, you know, it's probably, I mean, it's huge. Um, and, And going back to before COVID, you know, tourism was terrible. I mean, you go to Barcelona for the weekend. If you go to the suburbs of Barcelona or the outskirts, it's a beautiful city. And and, uh, I love Catalonia. I think it's a great part of Spain. Um, And but, you know, you go down the Ramblers and it was terrible. I mean, you know, um, uh, you know, cruise liners bringing in thousands of people and they weren't really spending money in the local economy. They were just sort of going around using the services but not spending money there so you know investment and you know these cruise companies aren't investing in it either um so you know tourism i think was actually probably doing more harm to spain than anything and it's sort of like (laughs) that like uh weird like abusive relationship you know it's like i think there was a bit of a a complex there as well as like we i mean spanish people are very proud and they're, you know, I think it would be good if they invested in something else other than tourism because, you know, I think a lot of the tourists that come to Spain, you know, many of them are coming here for the right reasons, Don Quixote, tapas, uh, sunshine, relaxing, getting to know the Iberian Peninsula, the culture, the history. Um, but there are a lot of... Um, a lot of tourism is abusive as well. You know, you've got um, all around the coasts, there are party scenes where, you know, during the coronavirus, these people weren't respecting um, social distancing, masks, things like that. And, uh, you know, I say this as a Brit as well. Um, It's thoroughly embarrassing for British people. I mean, but also, you know, Spain... I think Spain's a great country and it should have a bit more pride in, in not relying on so much on tourism and outside money to come in, which is the problem, isn't it, with coronavirus? You know, is this is this uh, a wake-up call? I think wake-up calls are only good if you do something about them. So, you know, yes, it is a wake-up call. Oh, oh we're, it's terrible. We're reliant on tourism. But if you don't do anything about it, then, then what's the point in having the wake-up call? So I do think that reforms need to be made and investment needs to be made and i think it could be a turning point i think a lot of it depends on the competence of the politicians because i think competence and intention are two things we often um get wrong and right like donald donald trump were had this image that he wanted to change america and that's what a lot of people voted for him 
but was he competent at it? Probably not. Um, and yeah. you know, um, the, the <clears throat> you know, it's even taking things like Brexit. Could Brexit could be a good thing if it was managed and done well, and you know there was a close relationship with Europe and all the rest of it. It could, you know, these negative things don't have to be um, like a bad. Yeah, I think I these wave calls can be can be a good thing if they're managed properly. I think it depends entirely on the, the quality of your political class, I suppose, and their willingness to instigate change uh, in a meaningful way, or whether we just say, right, great, we've got this money, let's just carry on down the same old road we've been going down for the last, I don't know, 60 years. Yeah. Uh, that's the question, if, if, if any government is willing to really take, pardon the pun, the bull by the horns, and actually really... <laughs> <laughs> really try and make some long-term meaningful change to put Spain on a, you know, not a completely different course. Of course, tourism in Spain will always be a fundamental cornerstone to the Spanish economy because of so many things, you know, it's yeah. got a lot of what a lot of people want, uh, great climate, weather, beaches, it's a well-established tourist destination as well. But does Spain need to have a long, hard look at itself and see what else it can be doing in the long term to to mitigate any other issues like we're going through now when we're just relying on only a couple of uh, sectors to generate uh, income? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, one missed opportunity, I would like, I think there's lots of opportunities, but unless you take them, they're missed. Then one of them was renewable energy. I mean, Spain has like the most sunshine in i think it's the country with the most sunshine in europe maybe but you know Definitely, there's a hell, yeah. hell of a lot of sunshine here um <laughs> and when renewable energy was really taking off um spain never invested in it um and and the there were like um there were some incentives to have solar panels put on your house they that that was those incentives removed by by the last rajoy pp government um, and they've sort of missed the boat. And I mean, they keep on talking about the Green New Deal, the Green Industrial Revolution. You know, this is popular all over the world. But Spain could have got ahead of the curve with this. And and yeah, there are there are and, and these are private companies that would have um, benefited from this. You know, the government would have benefited as well. But um, they sort of kind of missed the boat with that. Um, totally. I, I mean, given given the fact that, as you said, you know. Geographically, Spain is is lucky in the sense that you know solar energy and also uh, wind energy yeah. as well, and, and it has a, a, a ready-made population of incredibly well-qualified engineers. Yeah, uh, that, that uh, you know could uh, implement this. And and I mean the other thing that we haven't mentioned yet, but I think is terribly important, is what what is often referred. I think you've got an episode on this, which I enjoyed, by the way. It's like the empty Spain. Uh, you know the you know, these small towns in the middle of nowhere that, um, you know, if they're lucky to have a functioning uh, winery or a brewery or, or some sort of factory close, then that sort of keeps the town alive. Um, yeah. But some of them, you know, the factory closes and all the young people move to Madrid. Madrid and Barcelona sort of drains on the rest of Spain at times uh, and have yeah. historically been for a long time as well. But um, you know, if you open up a solar farm in the middle of two um, city, uh, two small towns that have both um, 
lost you know their major income which might have been a factory or a lot of it during the housing crisis was building which you know has never come back to that's why we've got all these empty houses around like some some places there's whole towns that are completely empty because the buildings were never finished but yeah so like using this investment into green technology and green renewable energies could have revived this uh you know this empty spain and i think that's just a a boat that's been missed and and i think unless spain starts you know getting jumping on these opportunities um then uh it's just gonna drift the the economy is just gonna get worse politics is going to become more polarized and um you know there's a lot of evidence that shows around that you know the more divided a country and the, and the the less productive its economy, the unhappier its citizens are, and and the the more individualistic the society becomes. And countries with more polarization in the economy, sorry, I mean, are the ones that are the least happiest. Mm-hmm. Um, Spain actually does does quite well, even though its economy isn't brilliant. It uh, it used to provide quite well for its citizens up until about. 2008 and and even though you know it wasn't the biggest economy in the world or anything um it was still you know it's not about having the most productive uh economy i don't think it's 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 about a balance between people and business and productivity and the work and life balance and and you know all these sort of uh stereotypes you can bring in and stuff but there needs to be some sort of harmonious balance brought back to the economy otherwise i think there's just going to be a continuing polarization not just politically but you know financially as well a lot of serious challenges ahead for spain um you know as indeed there are for many countries in, in around the world um and oh, in europe yeah it's given, not just spain given, at all given the situation now also with uh, with covid and it's kind of a shame isn't it because you know we had the 2008 crisis uh, the situation in spain was pretty dire and it just seemed like Spain had been managed to get itself back on its feet again, and then yeah. uh, then this happens. Yeah, um, and I guess it's a kind of how now Spain can deal with COVID and and coming out of the other side of the COVID crisis stronger, or at least with the motivation to change things for the better. I think I do think the government we have at the moment are the right people to fix it. Could there be other combinations with other parties? Maybe. Would they change, make the fundamental structural changes? Mm. I probably don't think so. You know, I'm quite pro this government, but I'm also quite critical of them because I want them to do well. Because, you know, I love Spain and I think it's a great country. And I see its potential as an outsider, I think, as you yeah. do too. And it's, you know, you want your best, you want the best for the people of the country. And these structural 100%. reforms are, are needed. Yeah. Um, and, and that's I, the thing, isn't it? Yeah, the, the structural reforms are desperately needed. Yeah, um, these like structures said, have been in place since the day. Well, they were put in. Not of them were put in place by Franco. So you know, um, absolutely. Before and, that. You know, we, we need a government which is really going to be proactive and mm. has the balls, frankly. Yeah. To not just go along the same road and maintain the status quo. Uh-huh. These structural reforms are, are really the key to the future success of Spain. And I could totally agree with what you said. It's kind of, we both love this country and you want to see it thrive and do well. And I just think in so many ways, Spain underestimates itself or is underperforming or basically just not fulfilling its potential on the on the global stage. Mm. And yeah, and I, I mean, uh, that's an important thing, isn't it? It's like, and it's not just potential economically and productively as well it's is its potential politically 
um, culturally and, and the potential of the country that gives the the people of the country the benefit, the ability to reach their full potential and be happy and, uh, you know, live fulfilling lives and not have to worry about, is my contract going to finish tomorrow? Yeah, exactly. Because I always think Spain is quite a curious case study in that sense, if you think about it, because in so many ways, you could argue that Spain is kind of a bit, bit slow to evolve, slow to change, is rooted in the past. Things move very slowly here. But then on the other hand, um, it's in many ways and, and socially, you could argue, uh, an incredibly progressive country, one of the most mm. progressive countries in, yeah. uh, in Europe as well. Um, it's kind of at odds with itself. Yeah. And I, that's a, like a big divide in a lot of countries across the world, though, isn't it? I mean, you know, you've got, um, you know, the progressive cities and what they might call the socially conservative countryside. But I don't think that's always necessarily true. And I think the country overall is a lot more progressive than it is often depicted. I think it's a part, yeah. side of Spain that, uh, you know, uh, is often played down because I think, um people like the romanticism of of bullfighting and flamenco and siestas and tapas and family yeah. get-togethers where in actual fact you know it's a very progressive and forward-thinking country in many aspects um you know i know a lot of uh homosexual couples that move to spain because the treatment here or the acceptance in certain areas of spain not in all areas of spain obviously uh for and for gay people, it's just a lot easier. You know, they don't get people staring at them in the street when they're kissing or things like absolutely. that. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think was Spain the first country in Europe or one of the first in yeah. the world to legalize same-sex marriage? Yeah, and I mean, for a Catholic country that still wears, you know, these pointed robes at, at Easter, it's quite the contradiction. But an interesting one, and and one that I hope, so I hope these sort of the traditions traditions can exist alongside being socially progressive. And I think that's something that Spain has as a positive compared to many other countries. Um, and I think it's something that, that, you know, they've excelled really in lifestyle and, and quality of life. And, you know, it's one of the highest quality, uh, longest life expectancies in the world, like with a, with a diet. And, you know, it hasn't been overtaken by this sort of culture of McDonald's and, and Burger King. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that's a key indicator, isn't it? I think Spain is has always set to overtake Japan as yeah. the longest-lived uh, uh, nation in the world now. And you're right. I mean, food, quality of life. I think this is a emphasis uh, um, on on the simple things. There's an emphasis on in Spain on not living to work, but working to live. And I think the other thing, which I've, I've, I certainly noticed since living in Spain compared with the UK, is, is that just still how important the institution of the family is. Family is uh -huh. very much central to life in Spain. Whereas I think, I don't know about you, in my opinion, in the UK or maybe in Northern Europe in general, uh, family has become less um, less important and we're more independent in that sense. Yeah. Uh, the family unit uh, is not as strong as it once was, whereas I think that still is in Spain. And I think maybe yeah. that feeds into the, there's a, you know, that sort of, social cohesion that there is in Spain, mm. which is something we've maybe lost or losing in, in the UK, for example. Yeah, and I hope they don't lose it in Spain. But, you know, I think without the structural reforms, that will actually go because, um, because 
I think as well, I mean, there is this sort of sense of family, but I think the, the government, uh, and I think the government, like, basically rely on that for a lot of things. Yeah. Um, and don't provide certain services because they, oh, you know, the family will provide it sort of thing. Absolutely. Um, but also, uh, you know, which in my opinion is quite a negative thing because with the coronavirus, we saw that um, all of these uh, nursing homes, which were privately run, in, mainly in Madrid, this was a big thing in Madrid, these privately run nursing homes were had huge death rates and the army was going in finding dead bodies because these nurses or these carers that were working there often very badly poorly paid just couldn't cope and and look after these older people and you know there's a lot of controversy and and i can't say you know whether it was this or that because it's never been proven about why these people were dining these nursing homes um but one thing that came out of it was and and it's something i've experienced personally because of my family life in Spain is that it's very seen as like a stereotype as a bad thing to put your family in a nursing home. So you're encouraged to look after your family member at home, but the infrastructure of care and support from the government to look after someone at home isn't there in Spain. Um, and it probably isn't there in several other countries in Europe as well, but you know, that access to a social worker, um, and to push through to getting you subsidized carers because carers are very expensive, uh, isn't there? And that's when people resort to things like uh, employing people illegally or even legally, uh, you know, these South American women to live in their house from Monday to Friday, 24 hours a day, five days a week to help them look after an old lady. Now, they pay these, these people aren't paid very well. I mean, they have rights and, uh, you know, they're not, uh, well, I hope they're not abused. I mean, there have been stories about abuse. Um, but, you know, this sort of infrastructure that it's either you pay for someone to live in your house or you quit your job to look after someone or you put them in a nursing home. You know, these sort of three options for older people and a country with a, an aging population. It's these this sort of structural reform that needs to change. Um, and I've been through the stress of caring for someone uh, with a chronic illness and these things, and there was no help. And, you know, the help came uh, after it was needed, uh, to put that in a polite way. And it was yeah. heartbreaking because it put so much pressure on me as a person and, and you know, my personal life. And that is like a structure, real structural reform that is going to be opposed by, you know, certain areas. but uh, it would benefit everybody, I think. I can't see why. And it's these sort of structural reforms as well that would benefit families. And, you know, it's really difficult to get to get that sort of necessary change through. Um, uh, and I yeah, hope it, I and totally it does come agree. through, really. And, yeah, and you could also, tied into that, look at, you know, maternity leave and that kind of thing, which is still, uh, you know, compared to other European countries, compared to the UK, for example, is problematic because it just isn't the same. There isn't this culture of uh, equality between men and women and sharing maternity leave, or indeed just having the same amount of time for maternity leave in Spain. 
And I just think also, you know, going back to uh, companies and businesses, again, it's just sort of a, a, maybe a cultural thing, but there is a, a, a real sort of distinct lack of flexibility in many, many businesses mm. to accommodate situations like when someone's very ill or dying or dies or when someone has children. So, yeah, they, I mean, again, this is a, a, a structural reform that needs to be to be looked at. You know, I think it's these things that for, for people that, that are listeners that don't live here, I think it's, you know, you really have to not just live in Spain, but you have to be sort of plugged into society a bit more, like working, Spanish friends, and Spanish family, you know. Absolutely, and it, absolutely. And I think there's a side that they isn't often talked about in, in English-speaking media about Spain because, totally you know, agree. It's you know more aimed at the sort of expaty sort of um, yeah absolutely maybe. absolutely yeah. I, I I've had kind of heated conversations with other expats in Spain for want of a better word or Brits living in Spain on internet forums Facebook groups this kind of thing and I I think in the you know, previous episodes that I've published on the podcast I've been accused of being uh, overly negative about Spain um, but you know. I think not being negative, just being realistic about it, because you're right, it's easy for people to view Spain from this kind of expat viewpoint or bubble of people who come and live and retire in Spain and live in a little community, um, don't necessarily have a huge amount of contact with Mm. all different stratas of Spanish society, different age groups of Spanish society, and think that it's just this kind of paradise where it's easy to come and move here retire here the weather's great the quality of life is great and you know my argument on many cases well okay have that conversation with a 25 year old Spaniard who is struggling to find a job who's living at home with their parents and you know until they're 30 uh, the level of unemployment the abusive working conditions the problems with false contracts all this they're not living you're not living the same reality as your average Spaniard no that's, that knocks on as well doesn't it to like the age that children women have children as well and I mean there's an aging population here as well um, and you know yeah. if you've got a better economy and a better system you can have kids at 20 three rather than at 33 and another i think but i think this isn't just uh, a, a thing for expats or or you know brits as well i think there is a level of um uh in in sort of spanish society that refuses to accept these structural changes are needed now i saw this and this was i met some spanish as i said i lived in london most of my friends are Spaniards because London is famously not a very friendly place and Spanish people are obviously very friendly. And I got talking to a lot of them and they were all lovely people. People that had been moved to had to move abroad to do their job because they, they couldn't get a job in their home country. But they still sort of had these, you know, sunshine spectacles on that Spain was still a great country. And, you know, it is a great country, but they wouldn't admit they they wouldn't uh, talk about the structural reforms, and it's. I think it's maybe it's something that that we that um, I think some of our listeners that maybe aren't from an Anglo-Saxon culture, in the yeah. Anglo-Saxon culture, you're allowed to be critical of your own country, um, yeah. and I think yeah. in Spain it's a, and it's a bit like what you were saying about work. It's like you have to be grateful for what you're given, and I think that sort Very of much. stems back from maybe the 
you know, the, um, you know, the sort of the Franco era where people didn't criticize government. There wasn't a, there, what there, I mean, there was a degree of freedom of speech, but that you weren't able, openly able to join a union. Uh, you weren't able open, uh, you weren't uh, openly able to join a political party. There wasn't any political parties. And this went on for 40 years. And, um, you know, this culture of, um, of being critical of your own country, but whilst, and, and often, you know, as you we were saying, people that are the most critical of their country often are the people that love their country the most quite a lot of the time. Um, and it's because you want the best for the country. Uh, I don't think that that is a part of Spain that is, uh, I think that's like an obstacle for a lot of Spanish society. And I think like the, the whole thing that would summarize this would be uh, as soon as someone criticizes how Spain transitioned to democracy and how, um, you know, how they never prosecuted people under the Franco dictatorship. Yeah. Um, but then that critical element is coming in, I think, now. And I think that's a good thing. Um, you know, people yeah, are definitely. starting to criticize the transition. People are starting to criticize what was the king's role? Actually, was he was he that great? Was he that uh, dynamic during the during the transition? Um, yeah, and I think yeah. that level of criticism will be a good thing for the country. Um, I think so. Um, I mean, if I had if I had a, a euro for every time I'd heard someone say, "Where's it's okay, I it's okay, I," you know, it, it it is what it is. It is what it is. I don't want to say that. You know, certainly not saying that Spanish in general are apathetic but there, are, there is a certain degree of resignation to certain things that well change is going to be diff difficult or uh, this kind of acceptance of you know things yeah. that shouldn't be accepted maybe yeah and I, that was something that the 15m movement back in you know 2015 you know there was a degree of we want change back then um will that Will that sort of social movement or a form of it come up after the coronavirus crisis? Uh, I think that depends on you know what we're talking about government governmental competence. Uh, will will they manage it, and will they change people's uh, material um, reality enough, or improve their their reality enough, the material yeah. sort of surroundings and things enough for them people not to be disenfranchised? Um, and there's always going to be people in society that aren't happy, but you know we have to sort of um, hope that they make enough changes to improve the lives of most people uh, rather than just the few at the top, really, I suppose. If you'd like to find out more about Alan Maguire, uh, he has his own website, and you can head across to alanmaguire.com. It's uh, Alan, M-C-G-U-I-R-E, alanmaguire.com. He's got some great episodes on his podcast as well. You can find his Sobre Mesa podcast available on all the usual podcast platforms in the same places where you would find uh, this podcast, I suppose. Just another quick note before I go. If you are new around here, you may not know that Wedding Spain also has a presence on all the usual social media channels uh, we've got a facebook group you can follow when in spain on instagram and see photos that i publish from all around spain and photos which relate to various podcast episodes also do go and head over to the when in spain podcast website which is when in spain podcast.com you will find more extensive show notes on their photos videos and things like that as well a bit more information about each episode and indeed about me and the podcast you can also find me on twitter 
Twitter and the handle is at when in Spain. So I will leave it there. Thank you for joining me. Sorry for the delay in getting a new episode to you, but don't worry, we're back on track. Stay tuned next week for a brand new episode of the podcast. Got a great interviewee lined up uh, for that episode. If you do enjoy this show, please don't forget a little bit of support really goes a long way. So if you'd like to sign up to become a patron, uh, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash when in Spain. If you're not in a position to support uh, on Patreon and make a small donation, something that really helps is to leave a little review of the podcast. Uh, You can either do that on the When in Spain uh, Facebook page, you can do it on most podcast platforms where you listen, especially on Apple Podcasts. Give it a little star rating and a couple of sentences uh, sharing your thoughts on the podcast When in Spain. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Until very, very soon, I shall bid you hasta luego. Thank you.